0: The Forward Together podcast from Hollywood Trust with Paul Gosling and Gerard Dean. Okay, welcome to episode four of the Forward Together podcast. Uh, my name is Gerard Dean and I'm joined as always by Paul Gosling. Paul, how are you?
1: Coping in the time of COVID Gerard, as we all are.
0: Good man, good man. Okay, so today we are joined by Suzanne Reuters, and Suzanne and yourself, Paul, had a grand chat about the media in Northern Ireland.
1: Yeah, that's right, and there's no better person than Suzanne to talk about it. She is a lecturer at the Northwest Regional College in Media Studies and an experienced and respected journalist and broadcaster.
0: Yeah, okay, so I think the few of the points for people they look out for or listen out for before we hear, you have a general chat about media in Northern Ireland, about how things all seem to be changing in the media but then at the same time a lot of the things are staying the same
1: well as with many things uh the coronavirus crisis is accelerating underlying trends that have been taking place for some time uh the traditional print newspaper industry has been under pressure increasing pressure for a number of years my the newspaper that i wrote for for 20 odd years the independent a few years ago went online only and that is part of a more general trend where social media and online media consumption has grown in strength and importance uh, and in revenues, whereas Mm. the traditional print industries are struggling, and in particular, they're struggling during COVID-19. Not so much, well, partly because people are not going out to buy newspapers, but more particularly because the advertisers are not advertising. And traditionally, of course, newspapers get most of their revenues from advertising rather than sales but Hmm. both were down.
0: Okay. and One of the other things that she touched on then was that things are changing in the media landscape in the sense that it's becoming more of a two-way conversation rather than simply uh, we report the news.
1: That's right. And we have what uh, is widely called uh, citizen journalists these days, people Hmm. who take to themselves the idea of reporting what's going on. The problem is, the question is, can we rely, can we trust on people who don't have any background? But, of course, as... Donald Trump would say in the United States, you know, do you trust the traditional mainstream media as well? So there are big questions about trust in journalists and the media industry.
0: OK, well, let's hear the conversation that you had with Suzanne.
1: How would you describe the media landscape in Northern Ireland today? Well,
2: I mean, it's one of those things. It's very much changing. It's very much staying the same. and um, very much changing in that you've had over the past so some... Um, new types of newspapers coming up i'm thinking locally of the likes of the very news which doesn't have any real political baggage with it and that's happened in a lot of other areas as well so that we are finding that there are new outlets in terms of journalism and of course a lot more bloggers podcasts like this becoming very um popular and people are finding that they've got a whole range of other areas where they can access their news and information and also contribute to it as well because the other huge change that there has been, of course, is that it's we're now talking about two-way conversations. Uh, whereas in the past, and certainly when I started my career in journalism, um, journalists delivered the news, delivered the information to people, and people absorbed it. Now we're, of course, having this two-way conversation when you're finding, even in the BBC, where people are doing news programs, even traffic reports, and they're asking people to come back and tell what think about this, your opinion, what's happening, where you are, that sort of thing. So of course, that's that's been a massive change in terms of the, the news and journalistic landscape. On the other side, of course, we still have the very traditional newspapers, the very traditional news outlets, I'm thinking about papers in particular. And there hasn't been a massive change in terms of since the time of the deepest, darkest days of the Troubles, where you had small places like Limavadi, like Stravan like Portjoin having two newspapers, sustained two newspapers because they were um they were there for two very different constituencies, one broadly nationalist, the other broadly unionists. And there hasn't been a huge change in that, which is interesting to me because I expected that it would have happened.
1: But on the other hand, I I heard Sam McBride say about how the newsletter sold out in nationalist areas. And clearly, it had a lot of interest from people from a nationalist and Republican background because of its coverage of the renewable heat incentive. Do you think that's just a one off? Um, Yeah, I mean, there
2: will be stories that cut right across um, all of the political boundaries that there are and i have to say you mentioned sam mcbride there i mean sam McBride's is an outstanding journalist no matter who he works for i would read sam mcbride no matter um, whether it was a skibbereen eagle he was working for i would be looking for him, and i think that i suppose one of the things around kind of social media and social media presence that journalists have now is that they've lost a lot of the anonymity they feel more um, like a trusted person sitting at your kitchen table with a, with a cup of coffee and certainly Sam McBride and his uncle fall into that category where it's, it's not so much who he's working for it's actually the personality of the journalists themselves where you can kind of, you know, trust that person there are a few people that fall into that category and uh, I, I know from my point of view and from the point of view of the students that, that I teach they would follow journalists sometimes Rather than actual news outlets because
1: they. Don't. And of course, you got people like Alex Kane and Newton Emerson that write for newspapers that would be associated with very difficult, different um, identity relationships.
2: Yeah, exactly. And the thing is, I think you know we're always we've always been news hungry in this part of the world, and I think people do also go and look at. I suppose maybe. even to be annoyed, they go and read somebody like Newton Emerson to to see what he's saying, they read Alice Kane because they are provocative, Um, the likes of Brian Feeney as well, because they are provocative and people are interested, and maybe that's a change that has happened, is that people are maybe feeling more able to reach out and look at the other side and consider the other point of view, whereas in the past that might have been a closed door.
1: But, of course, you and I are talking during a period of COVID-19 outbreak, which is likely to persist for some time. The newspapers were already struggling in terms of readership and income. Uh, they significantly lost both and particular advertising revenues in the current period, which does put new commercial pressure on those. And the big question about whether some of the papers will continue, survive. Yeah, I
2: mean, absolutely. We've seen, um, and very very in the Republic of Ireland uh, certainly journalists have been put on furlough, we have seen that happening and papers are in difficulties, they were in difficulties before this, they're much more in difficulties now but those who do survive, those papers which do survive may find that they have reached something of a holy grail, how do you create an appetite for online news so that people will actually pay for it because of course people can't go out now and buy their local paper okay the likes of the irish news the newsletter and the merv come together to offer a delivery service I think it's in greater belfast and they're talking about expanding that the telegraph already has a, a delivery service but by and large people are now having a look at their online news that's where they're reaching um, for for information and that was the difficulty with newspapers particularly in the, in the past where they felt they had to have an online a digital edition but they couldn't monetize it because as soon as anybody tried to put up a paywall nobody was paying for it the only one that i'm aware of that was you know quite successful and that was um donegal daily and that was largely due i think to immigration because you have donegal people who were in australia and canada and america germany all of that looking for news from home and were happy to pay for that news. So Donegal Daily managed to monetize, but very few others managed to do that. So I suppose, I mean, for those papers that do survive, there will be that maybe bonus that people have become used to digital editions from getting their news from online. And there may be an opportunity there to monetize that which wasn't there before, whether people would be willing to continue paying for after this is over, how long this crisis continues now at at the minute. Um, So, yeah, there are those um, challenges, certainly, but those challenges were there anyway. So it could be maybe just that kind of turbo boost to get people into the digital age.
1: Yeah, that's what we're seeing generally in the economy, that the COVID-19 crisis has accelerated existing trends. And I read that uh, my old newspaper, the London Independent, uh, which I no longer write for, uh is being regarded as an exemplar by other newspapers that might well follow the digital only route
2: yeah yeah i i mean i I think you're exactly right because if you if you look around at other things as well i mean we're seeing the death of cash for instance Mm. you know and you're quite right those things are being accelerated you know the possibilities of home working Um, are now being more explored. I imagine there are a lot of companies going "Mm, actually this kind of works and why have we got those big huge offices in the middle of town? Why are we paying these expensive rates so people can work from home? And I suppose on an upside of of some of that is that um, for people with disability or particular challenges for whom home working would have been a solution and who were told in the past now we don't really do that that they open some doors for them.
1: Now to move on suzanne to to a more uh, if you like uh, a broad brushed approach I, wh- how would you describe the role of the media in modern society
2: well, what I would like to say is that you know the role of the, of the media has always been to stand to one side and to shine a light in the dark corners you know, but that that's what we all like to say uh, of course, commercialization and the commercial reality is that Newspapers, the media has to sell advertising space, it has to sell copies, it has it has to be commercially viable, and that always is going to, to be in there and is going to be tainted there. But I mean, I've been looking across at how the media has been reporting, particularly around COVID nineteen. Now, it has to be said, it's it's a mixed bag, and you are getting people who are not being particularly um. I suppose responsible. I mean, you think of the of the likes of, of Fox News, and um, them pushing this chloroquine as being the the answer to this, and it's just interesting to watch. Fox News was saying this particular drug was just used to treat malaria, and they were reporting that this was a possible cure for COVID nineteen. Um, and the White House, of course, is so closely connected with Fox News. Don they has been a kind of an advisor to donald trump and um, if not officially, then unofficially and it was almost like like watching um ping pong because fox news were are putting out a story and then donald trump was kind of going okay that's getting a bit of traction right i'm going to say that as well and then because the president was saying fox news were reporting it back again and it resulted in an awful lot of misinformation going out on the likes of facebook and whatsapp and, and whatnot and um, You know, there's that level of disinformation that's going out there from the likes of Fox News. And then you've got um, people like um, Toby Young writing in The Sun and talking about this is the biggest economic downturn that we're going to see since the 1930s if you don't ease off on social distancing measures and saying he's sceptical about the prognosis, doesn't believe it. Um, But having said that, the Sun did then also report um, a professor of international public health saying now is not the time to lift any of these sanctions and every life matters. So it's it's sort of what you'd expect there.
1: And, and there's always been a history, of course, you know, for example, in the Daily Mail in Britain of the media being an outlet of propaganda.
2: Absolutely. But people know and understand that when you look in the Daily Mail, you know it's not The Guardian. When you're at the Guardian, you know it's not the So I think people are well enough informed as to kind of use the prism of what to expect. And I think there's a big difference between national, international news organisations and local news organisations as well. So of course, as we've said there, um, some newspapers, some news organisations have furloughs their staff. So the fewer staff you have, the less chance you have to fact-check. Um, you know, if, if you've got a reduced number of staff. But we do have organizations locally, the likes of Fact Check and I, who um who do do some really good work um in terms of um I've been watching them across Twitter and across Facebook as well, just explaining what some of the myths are and they're there as a resource. The Ethicalism Network um is working with different fact-check organizations who've set up multiple tools, free online training and resource hubs. To help journalists, just check their facts, just check and cross-check. But you know, the old rule of journalism still applies: you don't put something out as a fact unless you've got more than one source for it, and unless you've got reliable sources for it. That's always been how it is. That's always how it should be, and that's hopefully is, is how it will continue. Unfortunately, I think journalists, you know, have a bad press. If you'll you know, pardon the pun there, because I was looking at in March, Australia's Edelman Trust Barometer surveyed 10,000 people in 10 countries. Okay, it's not a huge number of people. And they were asking about trust and whether, uh, who people trusted. And journalists came bottom of the pile, um, even behind their own country's leaders. And as you would expect, scientists were were top of the pile there. Um, But people are getting a lot of their information from social media, from video sites, from messaging apps. But again, from the Reuters Institute looking at it, and it seems to be that people are cross-checking themselves. They're not just taking it at face value now, and that they are cross-checking as well, and that there seems to be a bit of a return to the likes of the Financial Times, the likes of the BBC, and the likes of The Guardian for solid information. So, Okay, people might see something on Facebook, and um, they might see something, there's citizen journalism, they might see something in the likes of the Sun, but they're not taking it at face value, they're going and checking it elsewhere.
1: But does the role of the media change because we are in a post-conflict society? In what way? Do we have other responsibilities? I mean, this. I mean, when I've been doing interviews with various people, one of the, the points that's come up several times is that a number of people within civic society feel that journalists shouldn't run stories that they know are going to make co- community relations worse?
2: Um, I've, you see, I think this has always been the case. It's not just post-conflict. Journals have always had to have integrity. And again, it's something that I say to my students. You know, integrity is key here. You, have, you can't say publish in the dam. You have to stop and think, well, what's the context here? Am I actually adding anything to wider knowledge or discourse? Or is this just a sensational headline? And I do know, and I'm not going to go into details, but I know that during the Gulf War, journalists stood back and there were stories that could have been written and weren't because they were inflammatory, they were going to be deeply hurtful. Um, and they weren't adding anything to the discourse. Same with The OMA Bomb. I, I remember, well, there were different stories that journalists got to hear about and we agreed among ourselves that, no, that this would cause more damage to actually publish. Now, I'm not talking about um, damage in terms of political damage. I'm talking about just the damage to, to the conscience of ordinary people and damage to, to the community around OMA that it would have been very difficult. So I think journalists are always, as part of the job, are always weighing up what are the consequences of this? Does it add more than it takes away? You know, what, What's my role here? Um, in a post-conflict situation, I think maybe less so. I think it was more so while the troubles were being reported. Um, Hugh and Adams, for instance, a lot of people knew that that was happening and decided to give it a little bit of space rather than to go ahead and publish the fact that it was happening at that particular time. So I think in a post-conflict situation, we would like to think that we are in a more robust situation, that we are in a stronger position in terms of community relations. And that um, journalists can maybe press the pedal a wee bit harder. Um, You know, I I think it's always been there, and I think it's sort of a shifting sands. And we can't make a definitive rule. Every story and every aspect of every story has to be weighed up on its own merits.
1: However, you and I will know that there's one particular radio programme. That uh, you can guess that interviewees have expressed unhappiness about where they feel it chases ratings even though it damages community relationships.
2: Yeah, exactly. But the thing is, if you you listen over a period of time, if you study that for for a period of time, what you'll find is that it's it's the same type of person who's coming on to talk and shout. It's the the same type of, you know, more heat than light that we're getting there. And just the fact that listeners to this podcast, you and I haven't even named it, and we all know exactly what we're talking about. We all know the program that we're talking about, and it falls into a particular niche. And the same with, um, the, you know, the likes of the song newspaper you mentioned, the Daily Mail there. We know we know what we're getting. Does it really inflame um, community relations? I'm not sure that it has that power. I actually don't know if it does, because it's like talking on to like. You will find the same people or a version of the same person every time you, you turn on But if it's about politics i have to say in that particular program that um a, a lot of the work that's done around kind of community issues community voluntary sector public services that sort of thing can be very good and can be very helpful i'm not sure it does inflame because it's the same people who are on there or a version of the same person who's on there. And they're churning out the same old arguments. And most of 90% of the reasonable people who live in this part of the world just turn over and turn off.
1: But it does raise another associated point, doesn't it, Suzanne, which is the value of diversity in the media. Because typically, if you listen to that programme, it's a very male audience, often from a very comparable background. Uh, and other programs might have more diverse voices, more women, more people from ethnic minorities. To, to what extent that is that value important in the modern media?
2: I think it's extremely important, but I think what happens is that if you're not going to get it in the mainstream media, then the, that kind of discourse is going to happen elsewhere. And that's where the likes of Facebook and Twitter become important as well. There's a, you have to do a lot of sifting and um, to, to kind of get the information. But um, a lot of that, and we, we know even the programs in the Northwest, a particular program, which tends to use Facebook a lot in terms of putting out threads, throwing things out and seeing what the response is. And if there is a response and a, an interesting response, then that becomes part of the program. So to a very large extent, the external conversations that are happening and that are happening on social media and that are happening in the community then get pulled back into, into the mainstream. Um, not as an influential program of course but I think you know if the mainstream is not catering for those issues and you know let's face it when did it ever really and um, if those things tended to happen elsewhere and then once they had a little bit of traction then suddenly they, they became part of that mainstream conversation.
1: This touches on another issue as well, I think, which is that if we acknowledge that there are some stories that are actually very damaging, even though they're true, they shouldn't be run because of what they do to the external world, maybe would spark a, a, a retaliatory violence, etc. Are there things that we should, as journalists, be doing that are making a positive contribution that might be regarded as ethical journalism?
2: Yes, I mean, absolutely. I- totally agree with that. I think journalists do have that responsibility because they have a unique power. Journalists have a unique power to disseminate information, to um, reach out, to ask the questions, have they access to people that ordinary people on the street don't have. And I think you know maybe that's where the real ethical responsibility lies and not just how you report the stories that come your way, that you come across or that you find, but also actually going in search of those stories that do shine more positive light. I mean, I, I was looking today, it's incredible some of the stuff that, that's on Facebook and um, on social media in general, where somebody is, is calling for, you know, total boycott of China, talking about genocide, talk, just oh, horrible stuff, really, really awful. And um, I think it is important, I think it is incumbent on journalists to go and look for those stories that um, provide context And I suppose it's maybe going a little bit deeper than just, you know, the headlines, the headline news or the headlines in in the papers. To actually go a little bit deeper than that and to add some context to the information that that, that we're getting. So from that point of view, from that ethical stance, I absolutely think that journalists, it is incumbent on them to um, go and look for that. And to explain things to other people, and I don't mean in a patronising way to explain things, but to be able to provide the context, the background that ordinary people, because they don't have time and they don't have access, aren't able to maybe to to, to find that, that kind of information.
1: But of course it's much more difficult these days because of the lack of resources and the fact that you've got in the old days you would have uh, the you know, the news editor who told you to go out and find a story these days you're much more likely to within you know the context of uh, social distancing these days but you, you're more likely to stay at your desk and be expected to rewrite a press release than actually have the opportunity to go out and find stories
2: yeah but it's the individual journalists, yeah of course you can sit at your desk and rewrite a press release but where's the crack in that and nobody got journalism to do that but yeah you know you're you're quite right oh there's a huge resource i mean when i started um the, in the local paper i started in the office was office at the library we spent a lot of time in the library now there's there's google you know there there's mm. all in all information online you can go you can check can look for information, you can contact people fairly easily on the other side of the world. You can go in and use tools on Facebook, like Graphic but you can find somebody, you can find an Irish person who's living in Wontag. You can ask them what's really happening over there. You know, you can find those resources with uh, not too much difficulty, whereas, you know, maybe, uh, you know, in the past, as you say news editor sent you out and said go and get a story you maybe got sent to a town and told don't come back until you've got six good stories we've all done that you spent a whole day you know tracking things down now you can sit and I'm not advocating it as as a good way as good journalism but you can sit in front of your computer computer, you can get access and you can talk to people and you can contact people and you can do background research as well and you have access to a huge volume Of information that will help you to verify and to, you know, the old thing of stand stand up a story. Does the story stand up? You can stand up a story by sitting, you know, at your desk and, uh, you know, going on Google, going on any of the myriad other sites. I'm I'm not advocating Wikipedia. Not am I ruling it out. I always say to students, it's a good place to start, but don't for heaven's sake repeat. As you know. The, the gospel, something that you picked up on Wikipedia or you've seen on Wikipedia if for heaven's say go and check it and triple check it before you use it. Uh, but all of that is now at our fingertips, so I would say it's easier maybe not to be an ethical journalist than it would have been in the past when you didn't have all sources there.
1: And the other thing I think to to stress, Suzanne, is that the current COVID-19 crisis has actually led to a significant number of positive stories about the the businesses that have gone out of their way to manufacture uh, personal protective equipment, uh, the the businesses that are doing home deliveries, the the rise in community spirit where people are helping each other. And that actually can help to bond communities together during a time of crisis.
2: Those types of stories are really heartening. They also, by creating awareness, they get people, more people to think. Like, oh, maybe we could do this. Maybe we could put something in that as well. And you're absolutely right. I Me, mean, you know, it's lovely to, to read the stories. hear about the organisations that have switched over from high end fashion, and they're making equipment now. And um, I, I was listening to something where. Um, and it was actually a Donegal student who a month ago was in Washington making a coat for Michelle Obama, you know, this designer coat. And it's now back um, in Donegal and making um, aprons and face masks and all this kind of equipment. That's, that's lovely. Um, those types of stories, I mean, we've all loved the story of this uh, war veteran who's 99 and he wanted to raise a thousand pounds. And I think the last time I looked, because he was walking around his garden doing... I think a thousand steps around his garden, and he was hoping to raise a thousand pounds. And the last time I looked, it was over 12 million pounds.
1: <laughs> well, in fact, I think it's 18 million as we speak now. But yes.
2: <laughs> it just kept going up and up and up. That's <laughs> a lovely story. It's an amazing story. And it's a feel good, and we all need to feel good at this time when people are maybe feeling pretty stressed out, maybe have loved ones that they're worried about, maybe have experienced COVID 19 in their own families or friends or groups. And it, it, it's wonderful to have those types of stories of deliveries being made to elderly and vulnerable people, people looking out for each other, even coming out and clapping at the end. I don't know how much good that does if it happens on a weekly basis, but, you know, it's a feel-good thing. And people are putting up videos of silly things that they doing. My own college has been putting up videos of uh, various people, how they're social distancing. Um, some of our performing arts and music students have been putting up videos, doing that, that type of thing. And just kind of reaching out and saying, listen, we're all in this together. There is no way that we're going to get out of it without depending on each other. So let's make the most of it. And it's something that I don't know if it's going to happen, but I'm interested in seeing what the landscape is like when all of this is over. Because, of course, when we had the financial crash, um of the, the 1990s um and people say no it will never go back to this with, um, this you know capitalist driven society um and we did <laughs> let's face it we did yes. so i'm just because people are saying oh it will never be normal again i'm not so sure i'd like to think it wouldn't be but um I'm, I'm interested in seeing how we emerge from this and what sort of society emerges out of this
1: Now, Suzanne, the one thing that we've not mentioned here, which we should do, is the role of the media in holding government to account. Uh, What do you think the relationship between the media and government should be?
2: Well, I mean, exactly that, holding to account. And okay, there has to be, um, I suppose, a, a sensible approach. And we're seeing it. I'm interested in the Republic of Ireland at the minute. What happened to the election there? Was that the election that didn't happen? Because now we seem to have continued on and ignored the results of that election, um, and we've still got Leo Routter, who has played a stormer, it has to be said, with Leon Martin, something kind of looking over his shoulder. Um, and, uh, you know, I I think the, the news class uh, journalists in the Republic have appeared to have taken the decision not to challenge that, not to ask questions around that, although they are asking questions of um, the, the leadership generally and what is being done in, in the Republic. Um, as far as Boris Johnson is, is concerned, um, I think there were strong questions being asked of them in briefings. Some of the news outlets definitely didn't cover themselves in glory, I'm sure you, you know what I'm talking about, what some of the briefings there and it was all well met, and almost some um, patriarchy could be questioning, um, which I thought was uh, an interesting point of view that, you know, you, you could, without knowing, you could nearly tell which outlets uh, the journalists were representing by the way in which they framed their questions. And I think some of that maybe is to do with public perception as well, that they um, were maybe reflecting what their readership listenership would have wanted them, the, the approach that they would want have wanted them to take. Um unprecedented I, I think in the uh, in America where orange got into a whole argument with NBC over reporting and really seemed to have lost his rag. Um but a lot of people were cheering that on and saying, yeah, good for you, because on the other side, of course, you've got Fox News. But I think, you know, to come back to your original question, the, the role of journalists is still to hold authority to account, um, but to do so within the context and framework of everybody is trying to deal with a very, very difficult situation. Um, there seems to have been uh, almost a feeling of those hard questions shouldn't be asked just now, therefore later mm. on, right, let's not demoralise to people too much. So let's get through
1: this, and then ask the hard questions after. Um, I'm hoping the that facts Yeah, it does feel to me a bit as if that's gone uh, slipped over into well, let's let's do our patriotic duty, not challenge the government, but actually, the outlets that are doing that the most are the ones that are most politically sympathetic to those governments. And I think you're right that in the Republic, there is this sense that you've got. If on this the surface, this patriotic duty to see us through the the crisis, but actually that has also uh, done pretty well for the two main parties in terms of their uh, their media coverage. I, the the, yeah. the outlet that actually I'm I've been most impressed with uh, by in this crisis has been the Financial Times, which has very strongly argued against a return to the old capitalist system, which is exactly against what you would expect it to be saying given its readership.
2: Yeah. terms following the, the Financial Times, um, you know, obviously read it at different times, but it, yes, I no, I would agree with you on that. Um, I think your reporting has been extremely good from that particular organisation. And I think very, very interesting Um, that Financial Times has not just been saying, okay, we can't return to the old capitalist system, but it's actually giving us context as well and explaining why. Mm. And also, you know, you know here's, here's a better system that said we could kind of move to. I think it's, it's interesting, and to bring it back to Northern Ireland politics, I think what's interesting is that the challenges that the MSS yeah. have um, experienced here, the challenges that the, uh, the HSE and the Republic have experienced have almost kind of lined up. Do you know, it was one of these things where people said, oh, the health service in the south, even those people who would have been maybe keen and supportive of irish unity was saying yeah if you look at the health service down there it's shocked. and um, i think it's been interesting just to see the recording and the way that both health services have been um compared to each other mm. um but it's been, you, you know look at the, you know people are looking for things looking at the testing is happening in the south it's not happening up here and I, I suppose in the past there maybe was a thing and i would have felt it as well if it was, a duty to support and to be, um, you know, be supportive of the NHS and praising the NHS here, which is wonderful, the NHS is wonderful, except it's been stripped of funding so badly for for so long. But I just think it's it's interesting that and wondering what will emerge from that um, when all of this is over and how the two health services will be viewed from each side of the border and I suspect that there'll be a change there.
1: And I think just to round this off, Suzanne, I think what you and I are are both saying is that what we are most pleased with and most impressed by is those media outlets that can surprise us by moving away from their natural perspectives of society to actually provide independence of thought and new analysis which is based around evidence. Well, you
2: know, it's extraordinary times bring forward extraordinary changes, and I think that is, you know, what's happened. What what happens on the far side of this? I don't know. and um, I, I don't think that there's going to be a huge change in terms of, um, say newspapers moving away from from their natural bedrock in terms of unionism nationalism. I don't think that that's going to happen. But I think that maybe we will see. Surge and a change in the number of outlets which we have said, but also in a change in those outlets that are still existing. Insofar as that there will be that digital dimension, and the digital dimension may provide more of a breeding ground for that type of change and that new discourse that we that we really need.
0: Suzanne,
1: thank you very much indeed. That's great.
0: Okay, thanks to Suzanne for her insights there. Paul, interesting there. At- picking up on the conversation around ethical journalism and fact-checking and things like that been really important.
1: That's right. Uh, I I was particularly keen to talk with Suzanne to talk about whether there are different responsibilities on people in the media in a post-conflict society. And really, I think Suzanne is saying that the responsibilities are the same whatever type of society you're in, which is to tell the truth and to be responsible, but also you don't necessarily have a political agenda of making things better, but you do have a responsibility not to go out of your way to make things worse just in order to chase ratings. And I think that is a sober lesson for all journalists, and I'm not convinced that necessarily all journalists abide by that principle.
0: Yeah. I'd stress, too, around uh, how Suzanne sees the role of a journalist to hold those in authority to account. But also, there's some... Uh, if you like, media outlets that are taking a real leadership role, particularly during this time of crisis. Uh,
1: That's right. And in a sense, that uh, has gone through since before the crisis. I think um, the the newsletter and Sam McBride, the the political editor of the newsletter, uh, was really quite inspiring in challenging political unionism through the the voice of the mainstream unionist newspaper, over the renewable heat incentive. And he shows, I think, how whatever political background your media comes from, you can still be challenging. And I think that is a strong message to the whole of the media industry in Northern Ireland, that we must be resilient. We must struggle to hold political leaders to account.
0: Brilliant. Thanks to Suzanne for her insights, as I said earlier, and thanks to yourself, Paul, and thanks to the Community Relations Council for funding this podcast and for you for listening. So that's it for this episode, and we'll talk to you again soon. The Community Relations Council for Northern Ireland supports this podcast through its media grant scheme, and core funding programme.